0: Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for this Easter season. Thank you, Jesus, for being in the midst of this Easter octave today. It's still technically in our church Easter day for the next seven days, and so... We pray, enjoy thanksgiving and gratitude for all that you have done for us, but especially that you've risen from the dead so that we too one day could rise into eternal life with you. We pray, Lord, that that joy would emanate from the words that we read tonight, that we would experience your mercy, your forgiveness, your love. If there's anything weighing on our hearts, Lord, anything distracting us tonight, we just ask that You remove those things, and we lay this time at your feet, asking that you bless each one of us in the ways that we most need it. Guide us as we dive into your word. Speak to us and allow your Holy Spirit to guide this time and each one of our lives. And we pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. Come on in. Have a seat. We're in John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. John 20, verse 19. And we are going to read through this twice through. This is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, which is the second Sunday of Easter. And it is also called Divine Mercy Sunday. It was named as such by Pope John Paul II in recognition of a day to celebrate the devotion that was begun in the visions that St. Faustina Kowalska had and recorded in her journal of Jesus. And so uh, it's especially, uh, I don't know, especially celebrated. Uh, this coming Sunday. So always on the second Sunday of Easter. And so you'll get some of the themes of mercy in all of the readings. But this particular passage is the appearance of Jesus to the disciples and then uh, without Thomas. And so we have the uh, famous story of the moniker of Doubting Thomas in our gospel passage this evening. So again, we're in John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. We're going to read through this one time first, and we just want to paint the picture. Okay, so pretend you've never heard this before. We're going to... uh, Listen to this with fresh ears, and act as though you have a blank canvas in your mind, okay, like you've never heard this story before, and engage your senses in the text. Pay attention to what you see, what you smell, what you notice, who you are in the story as we read. So John 20, starting in verse 19, we're going to read through the end of the chapter, verse 31. Appearance to the disciples, on the evening of the first day of the week, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. Thomas. Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger into the nail marks and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now a week later, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, although the doors were locked, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and bring your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believe. you may have life in his name. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we've read that once, you have a picture in your mind. We're going to read through it one more time. And this time I invite you to pay very close attention to the words. Follow along just with the words. Try and either focus on that image or focus only on the words. And whatever word or phrase stands out to you, resonates with you, for whatever reason, just pay attention to what that is. Act as though God is speaking to you through that particular word or phrase that stands out. Maybe it sparks a memory, relates to something going on in your own life, a question that you have, uh, an issue that you're going uh, that's going on in your own life, whatever it is. We're not trying to interpret this theologically. We're trying to interpret it personally. How is God speaking to me? So we're going to pay attention to that the second and final time through. We're in John 20, verses 19 through 31. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, "'Receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained.'" Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, "'We have seen the Lord.'" But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hand and put my finger into the nail marks and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now a week later, the disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, although the doors were locked, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and bring your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving. And that through this belief, you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now I invite you to look back over the passage. Begin to reflect on the things that stood out to you personally. Why did they stand out? Why is God allowing that to resonate with you? What is he trying to say to you through this passage? Take a few moments to reflect on that, and then at your tables, uh, feel free to discuss what are the things that stood out to you and why, what questions do you have about this reading. If you're at a smaller table, feel free to join another one if you would like, Uh, and if you're listening or watching this later, please let us know what stands out to you. But for those of us here, we'll take about the next 10 minutes or so to discuss at our tables, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for discussion and questions. Uh, A few things I want to share about this passage, and then we can go into some questions and reflections. Um, And the first is pointing as to why this is the gospel for Divine Mercy Sunday. What in particular about this demonstrates Jesus' mercy? And I think to illustrate this is to put ourselves in the position of Jesus. I mean, dare dare we try, but to put ourselves in the position of Jesus, okay? You've had these people following you. Professing that they love you and that they will do anything for you And then they abandon you and betray you the night that you are arrested tortured and crucified for them even though you did nothing wrong And you know you have the power to raise yourself from the dead. They still don't understand eventually you do that three days later and Then you show up to all of your betrayers and abandoners all the people said who said they would be there and If you're me you would probably say gotcha You know, or like you said you would be there, but where were you, you know, at least that's what I would say in my own human, you know, my own humanness. It reminds me of if you've seen the movie Pretty Woman with Julia Roberts when she goes into the store and she's like she's like rejected from the store because she looks like, you know, you know, a street urchin and then she comes back with all these bags And she's like, you work on commission, right? Big mistake, huge, you know, and just wants to go rub it in their face. I'd be like, that would be me if I were Jesus. I'd rub it in their face. I'm like, you thought I was dead. Look what you did, you know? But that's not what Jesus does. He comes, and that's probably what they're expecting, right? They're hiding, they're afraid, they're in probably the darkest moment they've ever experienced, longing for some sense of what to do next. And Jesus comes in the midst of them, and what does he say? Peace be with you. And to emphasize it, he says it a second time. Peace be with you. Shows them his hands and his side. And only after that does it say the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They go from fear and cowering and despair, hopelessness to joy. And that, I think, is a big reason why this is the Gospel for Divine Mercy Sunday, because we, in many ways betray Jesus and abandon him all the time out of fear of speaking up in a situation where we know we want to represent the faith, but we feel we'll be the only one or the minority in the room. Maybe we turn away from him due to a habitual sin. We don't do the right thing. We lash out at someone. We're not compassionate to someone who needs our help. We're more selfish than we'd care to admit, whatever it might be. And even in those places of darkness and despair and separation Jesus comes. He comes and he's with us. Even in the midst of our doubt, we have Thomas here, which I think it's unfair to characterize Thomas as doubting Thomas. I don't like that nickname because I don't think he was doubting. I don't believe that Thomas was doubting. If you look back in the Gospel of John, there are two instances where Thomas is highlighted. And one of them we read a few weeks ago when uh, Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he's saying we have to go back to Jerusalem and everyone's like, why are we going back there? Like you're gonna they tried to kill you last time you were there. And Thomas says, Let us go so we will also die with him. You remember that? Let us also go to die with him. Like Thomas is like brave heart rally cry, like, let's go to the end with Jesus. He's our ride or die. Like that's it. And then in the midst of the, the priestly prayer and the Last Supper discourses, Jesus is saying that he's going to go away. And where I am going, you do not know the way. And it's Thomas who speaks up, and he says, Master, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Almost a sense of desperation, like, I don't want to be separated from you. And so it's here, when Jesus appears to the ten, they go to their brother. They desire to be unified, something that we could learn a lesson from. The desire for that news to be shared with anyone who was not there. And they go to their brother Thomas, and he says, Unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands, and put my finger to the nail marks, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He doesn't say, oh, I doubt it, or I don't believe you. He says, I will not believe until I see the proof, because, this is my speculation here, adding, because I think he would be too heartbroken at the thought that he could get his hopes up that Jesus was back, only to be disappointed. I don't think he can let himself even entertain the idea that Jesus is back after everything that they've been through, because to lose him a second time would be that much worse. It's like that phrase, um, once burned, twice shy. You've heard that old expression? you been burned once, you're, you're shy the second time around to believe or to participate in whatever that thing that hurt you was. And I think that's why Thomas is so... He's he's in so much despair that he's struggling to believe the testimony of his brothers though I'm sure he very much wanted to. But then when he's before Jesus and Jesus comes and he says here put your fingers into my hand and into my side and do not be unbelieving but believe. It doesn't say that Thomas did. It doesn't say he even needed to. It doesn't say that he went and touched Jesus in his wounds. Seeing him was enough, and he just said, and he declared one of the most profound statements about the identity of Jesus in all the Gospels, my Lord and my God. Not a Lord, a God, the Lord, the God, no, my Lord, my God. You are back and you are mine. That is the profound sense of mercy we get in this passage, that even in our doubt, even in our despair, even in our hopelessness, even when we, in the silence of our own hearts, our own lives, we're locked away in some dark place like they are locked in a a room, Jesus desires to come to us in the dark places. He begins his public ministry in the lowest geographical point on the earth, in the Dead Sea where he is baptized, near, near the Dead Sea in the Jordan River. He comes to the lowest place in the middle of nowhere, to show he will go to the lowest place to find us. And then when he restarts the ministry of his resurrection time and to his eternal life in heaven, or he is eternal, but to his time in heaven after he ascends, again, he comes to the darkest place to show them that he will always bring the light. That is mercy. Justice is God giving us what we deserve. Mercy is God giving us what we do not deserve. And in all of this betrayal, all of this abandonment, all this darkness, all this sin, all this hopelessness, he comes and gives peace. Shalom. Which is not just, I want you to be calm and without strain or anxiety. Shalom is a wish of wholeness. I want you to be complete. That's what the word shalom means. And so in this moment, Jesus presents them, I maybe not presents them, but he gives them three gifts. And those gifts are his presence, his peace and his power. He shows up to them. He is present to them, even in the midst of their despair. Despite betraying him, despite turning away from from him, he gives them peace. And then on top of that, as undeserving as they probably feel, as broken of sinners as they are, and as we are, he gives them the power of the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them as new creations and gives them power to forgive sins one of the places in Scripture we can cite for the power and the tradition of where we get the sacrament of confession from, the authority that Jesus gave to priests specifically to forgive sins, where it says previously in Mark chapter 2, verse 7, who but God, who but God alone can forgive sins. It was a belief that only God could do this, and only God had the authority to do it. And now Jesus is giving that divine authority to these faithful, uh, faithful disciples, the 11, eventually to all 12, who then give that and pass that on to their predecessors who are our priests and bishops today. And it's through that authority that we can receive that same mercy, that same forgiveness and confession. Doesn't this sound a little bit like confession? Like Jesus doesn't say, gotcha, he brings peace and joy, he gives us the gift of the spirit, he reminds us that he chooses us, even in the midst of our darkness, despair, and confessing our unbelief. That's like the sacrament of reconciliation. We go and we admit our fault, and Jesus doesn't say, shame, shame, shame. Shouldn't have done that. Straight to hell. No, that's not what we get. I mean, if you're getting that in confession, go to a different priest because that priest is a heretic. It's you know, that's not what you should be getting. <laughs> I wish more people walked out of bad confessions. I really do, because they are all meant to be a welcome home to the mercy of God. Hundred percent of people who go into confession come out forgiven. That's divine mercy. So he gives his presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence, the power, and the authority to forgive sins so that wouldn't just be received by the apostles, but it would echo and ripple effect into all of history to where we today can go and experience that same forgiveness from that same spirit that was given in this moment to the apostles in the upper room. That is the gift of mercy that we celebrate this Sunday and how Jesus is seeking to be present to us in all these different ways in this beautiful passage. So with all that being said, any further questions, things that you uh, resonated with or that stood out for you? Yes, sir. Um, when it's, is the reason why
2: kind of Jesus shows his hands is it like, it kind of shows that he's not like trying to harm like, them. He does, is he's like basically doing this to like, be like, hey, I'm not going to,
0: you know. I come in peace. <laughs> I have no weapons. No, I think it's to show that his wounds. Okay. To show, because it's clear from the Gospels that Jesus is not immediately recognizable in his resurrected form, there's something different about him. And I mentioned this when we had our passage on the Transfiguration, the second Sunday of Lent, uh, that we read every year. And Thomas Aquinas points out that in our resurrected bodies, and we see evidence of this in Jesus during the Transfiguration and the Resurrection, there's four qualities that, um, that the resurrected body demonstrates. It is impassable, meaning that it, is, it does not decay. It's without decay or sin. Um, it, has the, uh, it has agility, which means it uh, can do things that a normal human body cannot do. It's not bound by the same laws of physics. It has what's called subtlety, which means it's not affected by normal obstacles. Jesus can pass through walls into a room. And it demonstrates clarity, that brightness that shines, particularly in that scene of the transfiguration when Jesus glows radiant white. And so he's not immediately recognizable. Mary Magdalene thinks he's the garden. They think he's a ghost when they, uh, the seven of them are fishing on the Sea of Galilee in the following chapter, and he has breakfast with them. Um, you know, but eventually, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus don't recognize him until he reveals himself in the breaking of the bread. So there's something about him that's different. So the wounds are a telltale sign that this is someone who's been crucified and who said he would rise from the dead. And that really narrows down the possible pool of suspects, <laughs> like radically. To, like, three people within the last few days, and the only one who probably said he'd come back was one, and that was Jesus, okay? So that's why. But it's an important also note that with all those qualities and characteristics, impassibility, agility, subtlety, clarity, Jesus still has his wounds. They're not healed. They're not gone. They're not plugged. They're not scarred. They're still open wounds to where someone could put their finger or their hand inside. You ever realize that? Jesus' wounds are his trophies. They show that he has conquered death, but they also serve as an example to you and, and, and me that our wounds can be our trophies. If you've ever read the book The Wounded Healer by Henry Nowen, this is a big place where this theology comes from, but it's all over um, like redemptive suffering and all over, you know, the place when you you delve into this area of theology. But basically, it's the belief that in in our own sins, our own trauma, our own woundedness, it's through that that we can bring healing to others. We all have a unique story to tell, right? When you become Christian, when you convert to the faith, when you're baptized, you don't just ignore the person that you were. Yes, You have died to the old self, meaning you're no longer attached, hopefully, to the things of the world and to sin, but it doesn't change the person that you were. And that's part of the story that God is telling with your life. And when you learn that story and you can perfect that story and tell it to others, others will find points of relatability and they'll be able to see if God can work in your life, he can work in my life. And that can only happen when we allow ourselves to show our wounds to other people. Look at the scars that I've had in my spiritual journey. Maybe you've had similar ones. God has healed me. He can heal you too. And that's another beautiful thing about this passage, that Jesus tells us it's not all about being perfect and having the appearances of everything being together. He doesn't shy away from showing us the gruesome reality and ramifications of sin, of death, of the things that he endured for our salvation but he does it to show an example to us on how we can witness out of our woundedness, out of our brokenness to others. When we humble ourselves, not when we try and be the, the smartest in the room, the holiest in the room, doing all of the spiritual practices, appearing to be perfect. No, when we recognize that we are sinners, that we are broken. That's when we have need of a Savior. If you're walking around like, you know, oh, I you know I don't really struggle with anything. I've overcome all my sins. I, you know, I read a lot, and I know a lot about the Lord, and I'm, I'm here to educate you. Well, it doesn't really sound like you need a savior. Good job saving yourself. I'd be very interested to be a fly on the wall in the uh, conversation at your particular judgment when you die with Jesus, but... <laughs> we all need Jesus. No one can save themselves. Yes?
1: Uh, when it says in verse 22, uh... Receive the Holy Spirit. What is
0: the difference between this and Pentecost? So there are discrepancies here because this is obviously eight days after the resurrection in uh, the way that John records it, but we have the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, which is believed to be 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. So some biblical scholars say uh, there's two outpourings of the Spirit. Why not? You know, Jesus just wants to give us a double portion of his Spirit, just like Elisha asks Elijah for in the Old Testament, if you remember, before Elijah is taken up in a fiery chariot, Elisha uh, asks him for a double portion of his spirit. So they show that as a fulfillment of Elijah's outpouring of his spirit, just like Jesus is in some ways a new Elijah, a new prophetic figure, a new divine being, uh, fulfilling all those foreshadowings in the Old Testament. Um, this is also could just be the very same event, and John is presenting it in a certain way as a literary device to demonstrate Jesus's mercy in this moment through the character of Thomas. You know, uh, did Thomas really doubt? Did it really happen this way? John is clear in the way that he writes this that he is this is, uh, and there's clues in this all over the text. Doesn't mean that we can't believe it, but we have to recognize he's doing a certain thing. He's communicating certain events that were not in the synoptic gospels, the other gospels, to show, as it says here in the last verse, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's why he's writing. So he's positioning things in a certain order, Only certain episodes of his life and his ministry so that we will know that Jesus is the Lord. The exact historical chronological details, not as important to John. Okay, his chronology is all over the place, as it is in in Mark. There's a, a second century father, Papias, who says that Mark does not record the exact chronology of Jesus. And so, as I said, I think last week, I think the best chronological timeline you can trust is the Gospel of Luke. Because Luke says in the very first four verses of his Gospel, he has set out to investigate everything accurately anew. And he collected exact eyewitness testimonies of people. He was not a follower of Jesus. He didn't know any of this firsthand. So he got it from everyone else and did the best he could to present what I think is the most coherent chronology of the Gospel. Um, So when we have these different disparities, it doesn't mean that one is true and the other is not. We live in a both-and theology of Catholicism that says, why not both? They could be the two different versions of the same event, two different outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't really affect anything we really believe about Jesus and that there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But it is one of those discrepancies that might come up when people criticize continuity issues in the Bible. So it's a great question. Yes?
2: On, on the point about woundedness, um, there's there's kind of this idea of like the saints being glorified with their wounds. Mm-hmm. You know, we have like icons where, or St. Paul is probably the best example of mm-hmm. carrying the sword yeah. that he was he was killed with. Mm-hmm. This might be a little too speculative, but, you know, it seems to me today that most people are carrying psychological wounds, sure. most physical wounds, mm-hmm. and that's most of the suffering that, that modern Christians endure and, and seem to be purified by mm-hmm comes in that form. I guess, do you think, or is there an answer as to whether those wounds will appear on the glorified bodies of Christians, um, physically, Mm. as well as psychologically? Um, Because it seems, you know, but at the same time the wounds on Christ's body are are very clearly redemptive for us. There's a very Mm -hmm. clear purpose why they're there. Yes. Uh, Or a very, yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's also clear from the text that not all of Jesus's wounds are there. Yeah. Because if they were there, he would still be like completely battered. You know, the amount of wounds that he had historically would have been just tremendous, and so he wouldn't be unrecognizable. Um, and so it seems as though Jesus is presenting certain wounds for a certain purpose, and that in heaven we do have the ability to understand. Things at a deeper level have a deeper revelation of you know every the plan of God, and we have a, a, a higher sense of knowledge, and so we may be able to see people differently, you know, and be able to infer something from that. There's there's a one of the preternatural gifts, which is one of the things that. Uh, is believed to have been attributed to Adam and Eve, that we will believe to one day get back when we're restored, and every, uh, sin is completely eradicated from the world, It's called infused knowledge, which means sin is no longer tainting our intellect. We'll have the highest uh, ability to understand that we can possibly have. And so in that, we may be able to see the types of mental wounds, psychological wounds that people have, but it will not be in a detrimental way. If If they are still there, it will be to glorify God and the healing that God did in them. So, but I totally agree. I think, you know, the. uh, I can't think of a single saint who um, doesn't have some kind of depiction or some story. I mean, so many of them were martyred. Um, I would add, and I know you know this, that, um, you know, more Christians have been martyred in the last hundred years than in all the centuries before combined. And so the violence that and the wounds that people carry because they are Christian in certain very hostile parts of the world is still very much real. And so there's plenty of modern... Saint stories being crafted as we speak in all parts of the world. People trying to witness to their faith and being killed or martyred in horrific ways. And so, but yeah, I think there will be some kind of understanding of the redemption God brought through the woundedness of people. How we visualize it, whether we can see it in any way we understand now on earth, uh, who knows, you know, because there are different light spectrums we might be able to see in. Uh, We might be able to, I don't know, hear orange and smell you know, uh, smell love, and whoever, you know, who knows? Our senses will be heightened and more integrated than they are now, and so, um, you know, I have a unique kind of experience of that because I have synesthesia, so I can see sounds, and so many people believe that that's like a, a integration of nerves that were are, you know, it's kind of like a, I wouldn't call it a deformity, but it's like a, it's a neurological anomaly that everyone has in some sense, but some people speculate that that's a version of the restored brain that we will one day have where all of our senses are completely integrated, and they affect one another in a way that is dulled now because of sin. Yes, sir?
1: So with
2: synesthesia, does that mean you see like sound waves, or it's in your mind's eye, it conjures up a color or an image?
0: No, so I have chromesthesia, which is that uh, when I, it's a version of synesthesia. Every sound that I hear manifests in colors that I visibly see.
2: So if I go like. If I go
0: like this, <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, yeah, I can see that. What color is it? It's like a sunburst of yellow when someone claps, yeah. Huh? Fireworks? Oh, it depends. It depends, yeah. Yeah, so, anyways, this is not about me, but anyway, yeah. Yes, sir.
1: Why did Jesus give the apostles the power to forgive sin during this particular
2: appearance?
0: That's a good question. He gives it to Peter before this right in Matthew 16 when he gives him the authority as the leader of the church that he intends to found. Uh, I think he extends it to them because his mission has reached its fulfillment. And so he needed to establish Peter as the leader so when he died they had someone to look to and they g- he gave him particular authority. but now that his mission has been fulfilled in his resurrection, he now extends that blessing to all of them. Peter still is the leader. But I think in this moment, this is the most vulnerable moment where, again, Jesus could have done the gotcha moment. You know, he could have railed into them if he was, you know, any ounce as human as we are. I mean, he is completely human, but any ounce, I guess, as sinful and selfish as we can tend to be. Uh, but I think in this moment, he gives them that gift just as a, almost like a double portion of his mercy. You know, even though you don't deserve for us to be back together again, I'm here. And on top of that, here's something else. You know, I don't think it would have the same effect and the same, I don't know, drama and meaning for them if Jesus gave them the Spirit when everything was normal. You know, they're around the campfire telling stories, everything's great, you know, Jesus just performed like 16 miracles that day, it's, it's the best day, and he's like, by the way, here's some Holy Spirit. I'm like, oh, awesome, this is great, you know. I don't think it would be that impactful as it was in this moment. So it's a great question. Yes? Um, um, it's my person
1: here, so... <laughs> trying to you know get all this. Yeah, no welcome. Um I really like how in the scripture um, on twenty mm-hmm. eight. Uh Jesus replied, You believe because you see me, don't you? Happier happy are those who have not seen me. Seen and believe. Mm-hmm. For me I was reflecting on that. It, <clears throat> like it's like it's a great reflection for me right now. Because I'm, I like to, like, I like tangible things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like things that I can call, see, um, feel, and if I can't see it, I don't, I, I don't believe. Mm-hmm. So, I, um, you know, to hear this, I, I've been, i turned away from religion mm-hmm. and God, actually. And it, you know, I've been through some rough spots, and throughout those rough spots, I was—I taught myself to. I know there was something out there. Mm-hmm. God, I knew God was out there, but just didn't you? I you couldn't, you couldn't see him. I couldn't, so I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like this is speaking to me—you know—telling me you don't have to see me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You have to just believe.
0: Yeah. Amen. Thank you for being here, too. It's very good to have you here. And, and, and it's a question for us, too, that in our doubts, this is something I often ask people when they, they're struggling with a belief in Christianity or if they you know agree with something in Catholicism, I'll ask, well, what would be enough? How much proof would you need? And most often, it then is like, well, you know, no, I've kind of made up my mind. It's like, so it doesn't really matter. You know, like, even if Jesus would literally come down right here and be like, yo, dude, I'm real. You would probably just explain it away as a hallucination or something that I concocted to convince you. Like, if you're that, your mind's that made up, you know, then it, 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 if we get in that mentality, then, then nothing, nothing will prove it. And so eventually we have to get to a place where we have to take that step of faith and believe. You know, I've said this many times over the last several weeks, um, but a thousand difficulties do not add up to a single doubt. We can have difficulties with faith, with understanding. But doubt is when we say, I don't believe that this could possibly be true. I doubt that God is real. We can have a difficulty understanding how is God real? How How do I touch him? How do I encounter him? How do I experience him? And I don't feel like I'm seeing him. We've all probably had situations like that. We don't feel like we see God. We don't feel like we're connected to him. We've all probably felt like we are suffering from imposter syndrome. I'm probably surrounded in this room by people who are holier than me and super connected to God. And why haven't I heard God's voice or had experiences like that? Why can't I read or understand the Bible like that? We've probably, all, all of us have probably had moments like that. Maybe you're feeling like that right now.
1: And it's in this
0: verse and in this passage where God comes to you and says, it doesn't matter how much you know. It will never be enough to prove to you definitively that I'm real. Eventually, we all have to take that step of belief. It's just like when you're in a relationship with someone, when you get married. You can learn as much information about them as possible, but you will never have the guarantee. That this person will never hurt you, betray you, turn their back on you, that you absolutely know every single thing about them, everything they'll do in a situation, you can guarantee every choice they will make from this point forward will be perfect and good and for your benefit and they'll never hurt you. You never have that promise. You eventually have to take the the leap in front of the altar and say, I trust, I believe that you are the person who I love and you are the person who you say you are, no matter how this turns out. The same is true for God. Same is true for God. We may think we have an understanding, and eventually we have to get to that place of belief. But the great thing about God and the revelation of God in Jesus Christ is that he does make himself tangible. That's why it's so beautiful to be Catholic, because we have a sacramental theology. You want to see Jesus? Bread, wine, water, oil, the priest and the confessional. We have these tangible symbols that represent the presence of God, the powerful presence of God in our midst every time we encounter him in the sacraments.
1: And though they may not look
0: different or special, they have significant representations of how they're trying to communicate to us God is present. And we feel the power. We feel the pull, as you were saying. Like, I know God is real. I feel that he's real. I know he's there. But sometimes it's hard to understand. And that's okay. That's okay. God did not call us to understand. He called us to be faithful. Yes, sir? I remember last year, uh, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the
2: Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and
0: said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Last year, you gave a really nice explanation
2: or, how can I say, is well, like a feeling like when you're talking about breathing? Yes. You know, and, and not not just seeing peace, like, hey, how are you doing, dude, or something like that.
0: But it was like this wave that comes over people of peace mm-hmm. when you say that. Yeah. That it filled the room. Yeah. So
2: I just remember you said that last year, how, how impactful that was for a lot of us.
0: Mm-hmm. I wish I could remember what it was, but what it's reminding me of now... you
2: got the tape from last year. Yeah, yeah. go
0: look at the recording from last time. Um, it's on YouTube. But um, what it's reminding me of now is also, you know, the this is a new creation. Jesus is seeking to rebuild, to build a new kingdom. And when he started out with the first kingdom in the Garden of Eden, what did he do in Genesis chapter 2? He He created a man out of the ground and he breathed life into him. He breathed life into him, and that breath, the breath, ruach in in in, uh, Hebrew, um, (laughs) pneuma in Greek, and spiritu in Latin is the words that we use in the Bible for the spirit, the breath of God that sustains us. We are meant to, biologically speaking, get about 80 to 90% of our energy from our breath. But on average, in modern society, we get about 10 to 20% because we breathe so shallowly and so quickly because we're always in a hurry, we're always anxious, we're not taking the time to slow down and be present and be energized. Next time you're tired, next time you're like totally drained, sit and take like 10 deep breaths. And one of the best things that you can do, let's all do this together, actually. You're going to take a deep breath and you're going to hold it, okay, on the count of three. One, two, three. Now breathe in a tiny bit more really quick. And now let out. You always have a little bit more room. And when you do that extra bit of breath, it actually like explosively expands your capillaries and your lungs to receive more oxygen. You do that five to ten times in a row, very thoughtfully, very slowly. It will wake you up like that. I guarantee it. Next time you're tired, next time you're sleepy, do it. And it will wake you up. It's better than any cup of coffee, any amount of caffeine or energy. That's what will energize you, and that's what the breath of God does for us spiritually. The name of God that God reveals to us in Exodus chapter three, when He when He speaks to Moses in the burning bush, when Moses says, "Who do I say that sends me to the Egyptians?" He says, "I am who am." In Hebrew, it's Ehyeh Asher et, and it's abbreviated Y-H-V-H, where we get the name Yahweh, Yahweh. And in Hebrew, you cannot actually pronounce that name. We can pronounce it in English because we make the consonants hard, but in Hebrew, those are all breathing vowel sounds. Yod, sorry, Yod, Vav, He. Those are the letters. So to say the name of God is to say, Yohivai. You have to breathe to say it. It is actually breath, sustaining energy, animating us, into life. That is the name of God. And so by virtue of the fact that we are breathing, we are speaking the name of God on a daily basis. If someone is yelling obscenities at you for your Christian faith because they're an atheist, they are doing it because of the name of God in their lungs. When someone is alive, it is because they can first speak the name of God by taking a breath and crying out as a baby. And when someone is no longer able to live in this life to meet God in the next, it is because they are no longer able to say the name of God with their breath. That's the beauty of that statement, that Jesus breathes upon us, and the sustaining energy of breath and oxygen, that's the presence of the Holy Spirit animating us, keeping everyone and everything alive at all times. That's how close God is to you at all times. That's how close God is to you at all times. I've mentioned this before, but it's like the nerdiest, coolest thing. It's that at the quantum level, like in your body, atoms are mostly empty space. Okay, atoms, are, they're 99% empty space. In the middle, you have the nucleus, the protons, the neutrons, and then surrounding, you have the electrons, but 99% empty space. You are made of atoms. 99% of you is empty space. So God is in between all of that empty space, sustaining you into life. God is closer to you than your individual cells are to each other. That's how, go, that's how close God is to you. That's how intimately involved he is in keeping you and sustaining you into life at every moment. It's crazy. It's crazy. There's actually a statistic that if you were to hit your hand on a table enough times, statistically, the right arrangement of the atoms in your hand and the atoms in the table, like one in like 13 trillion, would cause the atoms to exactly pass through each other. And your hand could, in theory, go right through the table. But it would be the most unlikely statistical anomaly possible where your atoms in your hand had to be perfectly arranged so they were not in the way of any of the atoms of the table, but it could theoretically happen because of how much empty space we're made of. Isn't that nuts? And yet in between all of that is God. So if you're, yeah, if you don't like science, then that was probably like ridiculous, but I think that's really, really incredible.
2: That's like Star Trek.
0: Yes, yeah. Any other uh, things that stand out to you, questions you have about this passage? Oh, yes, Michael. The part part about breathing, giving them breath of life, and just like sitting here, I was like, oh my gosh, that is like when people are about to die, and I give them mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're breathing in, yeah. And the crazy thing, too, is that Jesus' side is pierced, right? Mm -hmm. What is the woman made out of in Genesis chapter 2? A rib from Adam's side. That the bride, the church that we are, the bride of Christ, comes from the side of Jesus. That's why the image of divine mercy, which we celebrate on Sunday, is the rays of white and red light symbolizing the water and the blood that flowed from Jesus' side when Longinus, Saint Longinus, pierced his side with the spear to see if he was still alive. And out of it came the two fluids that come when life is created water and blood. New life pouring out of the side of Christ, just like new life of Eve poured out of the side of Adam. Yes? Has anyone had, obviously, they've
1: had stigmata, right? Yes.
0: The I would. I w- I don't know for sure. I would guess Padre Pio did because he even had the the hidden wounds of Christ. There's uh, certain stigmatists who've had really profound mystical experiences of the wounds of Christ actually report that the most painful wound of Christ is in the right shoulder. And for some reason, they all say that. And it's because of something like the dislocation that happens in your arms. Your arms are dislocated like three feet, lo- like further apart, up to three feet further apart uh, than normal, um, but also in the, the way that the cross was carried, the way that he was beaten, um, that that was something that Padre Pio reported, that hidden wound on his right shoulder. So imagine if he had that, he very well could have had the wound in sign, but I've never read that specifically. He may not have. So I don't know for sure, and I don't know if anyone else has. Captain of Siena
2: definitely did have Does she? There we go. Yeah, they, they reported a
0: scar under her under, under like belly. Gotcha. There you go. Where's he buried? Padre Pio? Yeah. He's buried in San Giovanni Rotundo? That's right. That's right, where we will uh, be on pilgrimage next fall, if you'd like to join us. <laughs> Father Patrick and myself and Roberto. Is
1: his
0: body yes. corrupt? Yes. His body is incorrupt, yes. He has not decayed. And he's been dead for 65 years, something like that? Is, it, is he visible? Yep. Glass case, just looks like he's snow white in the middle of the woods. <laughs> yeah. Any other final thoughts, questions, reflections? Yes, sir. Verse
1: where it says, sins, you forgive; the second part? sins,
0: you retain." It's basically the opposite. You, they could have the authority then, because they have the opportunity to forgive sins, to not forgive, and that is essentially kind of relates to um, the, I don't know if it's a doctrine, but the teaching of of the church that um, there must be true repentance in order for a sin to be forgiven and for a priest to have authority to forgive it. Um, So a priest just can't come up to you and say like, hey, how are you? All your sins are forgiven. Like you actually have to repent. And if there's evidence that you haven't repented or that you're still obstinate in your sin... The priest can point that out and say, your sin is still with you. Like, you're not sorry for this. You haven't repented. You keep, you know, you're doing this. You keep coming back here with no intention um, of of repenting or turning away from sin. So in theory, that could be the case. But um, that's why we are called to really examine ourselves and repent. And if there is a sin that we know that we're going, like if you go to confession and you, in your mind, you're saying, I'm going to confess something that I know full well that I'm just going to do tomorrow. Like I have plans."